0: And please turn your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In Matthew 2, at least four of the approximately 330, 330 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Christ will be fulfilled. And all of these four in Matthew 2 in relation to geographical location. Uh, the one we'll see today in the first half of Matthew 2 is the location of his birth, in the village of Bethlehem, which is just five or six miles southeast of Jerusalem, so not far. And though the location of Jesus' birth in the first months, uh, or even the first year plus of his life, it won't result in any major application for us today, it is very important. And it would have been very, very important to Matthew's intended audience, remember the Jewish people. If Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah, he had to at least fulfill some of the prophecies, right? Or maybe at least half of the prophecies? No, not good enough, right? Jesus had to fulfill all, all that God had promised concerning him in the Old Testament. And by the way, he has. He did, and he has, and he will. There's more to come. Jesus has fulfilled it all. He is the Christ. The amazing thing, though, about this passage today that will give us reason to pause, that will give us reason to reflect, is that this book, written to the Jews, in it, the first recorded worshipers of the Christ are, can you guess, they're Gentiles. Gentiles. And it will be this comparison and contrast of the Gentile wise men, and the Jewish religious leaders uh, that reminds us uh, not to just be busy and content doing religious, maybe churchy things, simply because it serves some internal purpose or some desire that we have, treating it like something that exists to tick all of our boxes, uh, but instead to sincerely, genuinely worship the King in everything we do. That's what we want to see in this passage. So let's start today in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And now just from this verse, in order to help us to understand what's going on moving forward, let's talk about the timing of this event, who Herod is, And then also who these wise men are. Okay, so first, the time. The question is, how long was it after Jesus was born? And we only know this much. It was less than two years later. Less than two years after his birth. And, And how do we know, you might ask? Well, you can either trust me on this one, or you can read ahead to verse 16 and spoil the story. Your choice. Something about all the boys two and under, right? You might remember that. So then Jesus, at the time of this visit, uh, from the wise men today, has to be older than a newborn. They're out of the stable and they're in a house, but younger than two. That's really all we know. Now let's talk about Herod, some info on Herod. Herod started his work in government pretty successfully as a prefect of Galilee, where he successfully put down a number of Jewish rebellion attempts. Remember, they wanted out from under the thumb of Rome. And now he had to flee, though, to Egypt when the Parthians came in from the east. The Parthians from the east when they invaded Palestine. So remember those people. After fleeing to Egypt, Herod journeyed to Rome, evidently got coached up on how to take Palestine back for Rome, And while in Rome, Caesar Augustus and Antony declared Herod king of the Jews. King of the Jews, before sending him back to go conquer his land. And he did just that. Between 40 and 37 BC, Herod triumphed over the Parthians and established his kingdom under Roman authority. Herod the Great, as he came to be known, ruled in Palestine from 37 BC until his death, which occurred, as we'll see next week, not long after the birth of Christ. Herod was known for his construction projects, such as the fortress of Masada, maybe you've heard of that, Uh, especially the temple in Jerusalem. It was known as the second temple or as Herod's temple. Herod was also an Edomite. He was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, sitting in authority over the children of Jacob. That's interesting. Now he married, though, a Jewish woman, however. Herod the Edomite married a Jewish woman. Her name was Maryamne, to make himself more palatable to the Jewish people. At least he had a Jewish wife, right? At least there was that going. Uh, Herod was also known for his cruelty, for his cruelty. Among the many he had killed during his reign were his wife, the one we just talked about, his brother in law, her brother, who was the high priest at the time, his mother in law, and three of his own sons, one of them five days before he himself died. So think about the heir to the throne. He had him killed five days before he died. What a guy! Herod killed whenever he suspected any lack of loyalty, whenever he felt his power could be threatened. And he also had a great desire, of course, as you could tell, to be respected and admired. Prior to his death, in order to ensure there was mourning in Jerusalem upon his demise, he ordered the execution of several prominent people from the city. So he actually ordered them all arrested, and they were detained... And then he required that they be executed the moment he died. So imagine all these people standing ready for execution at any moment. And the moment Herod was dead, they were all dead. And he did this to ensure, simply to ensure, that the people of the city would be wailing when he died. He knew it wouldn't be over him. But as long as they were wailing, that was good enough. This was Herod the Great. This kind of rain would cause everyone to be very cautious, right? Very concerned whenever anything strange or dangerous occurred. I'm sure everyone was walking on eggshells or pins and needles or whatever, knowing that at any moment Herod the Great might snap. That's Herod. Now, the wise men. The wise men were called magi. And the word in the Greek that we get magi from is also the word we get magician from. But these men were not Penn and Teller. They were not David Copperfield. The the new one, not the Charles Dickens one. The magi were primarily known as the priestly political class of the Parthian Empire. Who did Herod kick out of Palestine? Right, the Parthians. And just a quick history overview, in case you're wondering who the Parthians are. We don't usually talk about them much. But remember the Greek Empire, after the death of Alexander the Great, after his push... Eastward, when he died, Greek uh, Greece was split into four separate kingdoms, if you will, and the Seleucids were one of those four. But eventually, the Seleucids were defeated by the Parthians. So that's who the Parthians are. Okay, the Parthian Empire sort of went through this process of reverting back from all that Greek influence back to their ancestral Persian uh, ways, way of living, and so the history of the Magi actually preceded the Parthian Empire. Uh, they went all the way back to the 7th century BC. So they had all of that Persian and Babylonian back, background in their own uh, class. Over the centuries, they were known to be well-learned and skillful in science, agriculture, mathematics, history, all kinds of stuff, including the occult, the worship of various false gods. They were knowledgeable about all of those things. And astronomy and astrology. Uh, which back then that would have been more synonymous than it is today. They studied the stars. They studied the stars. The influence of the Magi grew in the Medo-Persian and Babylonian empires. They were utilized by the kings, by the emperors, as wise men, as counselors. That's why we call them wise men. Okay. In fact, it is said that no Persian could ever become king until after they learned the ways of the Magi and were approved and crowned by these men. The Magi crowned kings. The Babylonian Magi were recorded in history as having accompanied Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded the land of Judah. And of course, this is the part where we know more about this, right? After the Babylonian conquest of the Jewish people, a young man named Daniel became one of the most prominent and powerful magi in the empire, both before and after the Medes and Persians conquered the Babylonians. Daniel, who remained faithful to the Lord, was a different kind of magi, wasn't he? Uh, Though he was fully counted as one of them, and he actually saved them all from execution when God's, by God's grace he was able to understand, know the dream, and interpret it before King Nebuchadnezzar. And with this prominence of Daniel and the presence of the Jewish captives in Babylon, the Magi became further acquainted with the God of Israel, including God's promise of a coming king. And once the Magi learned of this new faith, they wouldn't have disregarded it. That wasn't their way. They had a, no, a whole new field to learn about. This is what they did. And so the God of Israel would have become another new and exciting topic of study to pursue, if if nothing more. Now, some things we don't know about these men. We sing and think all kinds of things about these wise men, but here are some things we don't know. Number one, we don't know how many there were in this chapter. We'll see later that they brought three gifts, or three kinds of gifts, but the text never says how many magi came to see Jesus. We also don't know their names. There are legends out there, but those are legends. Uh, We don't know their exact ethnicity, or where exactly in the Parthian Empire they came from, or if they were people who were transplanted into the empire, or if they were native to the area. We don't know that. Okay, there's been much speculation, much legend shared about these men. Your nativity sets at home probably have different people's ideas and opinions on display through their attire, through different paint colors of whatever material your nativity set is made of. But we really don't know the details that have been traditionally depicted in our songs and in our Christmas decorations. Uh, What we do know about these men, they were not kings. Okay, we three kings of Orient aren't, all right? They were magi, not kings. They were from the east, which means they would have seen that star in the west. They were headed towards Israel, towards Jerusalem and Bethlehem. They were definitely prominent men, wealthy men. They received an audience with King Herod. You don't just do that. You don't just get that. They brought expensive gifts. Uh, They probably didn't travel alone. Men like this would have had a following coming with them, traveling with them this distance. So even if there were just three of the Magi, there certainly would have been more people accompanying them on this journey. Furthermore, what we learn about these men from this passage, although their learning would have spanned several disciplines and included several religious practices, what had won their heart? What excited them the most? It was to know that the God of Israel had fulfilled his promise to provide a king for his people and for the nations, for the world. These men had come to fear the true God. We might think of Cornelius from the book of Acts. Remember, Cornelius was a Roman who feared God and then came to know him and to know Christ through God's divine providence. And these magi, these wise men, probably serving as counselors within the Parthian Empire, were men who were truly wise, in that they feared the true God. And through God's gracious plan, they were given the wonderful privilege of seeing the Christ, who they longed to know and longed to worship in person. So now, just to recap, because that was a lot of information, Jesus has been born within the last two years and is still in Bethlehem. Herod the Great, who defeated the Parthians to take his throne as king of the Jews, was reigning in Judea. And the Magi, prominent, powerful men, probably from the Parthian Empire, were visiting Jerusalem. Verse 2, saying. And this saying means continually saying. So as these magi are coming into Jerusalem, they keep asking this question to anybody and everybody who will listen. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Isn't Herod king of the Jews? Didn't we just kick you guys out? The people on the streets might be saying. Is this a threat? The prominence of these men and the weight of their question was about to get them an audience with Herod himself. But before, before we move on to that, we gotta talk about this star. Okay? We gotta talk about this star. I'm trying to act like, oh boy, here we go. Okay. We gotta talk about this star. It says, we saw his star when it rose. So here are some fun guesses that I want you to forget as fast as I say them. So as long as it takes me to say these guesses, That's how long you should keep thinking about it, okay? Some say the star was Jupiter or a conjunction of Jupiter or Saturn and Saturn. Some even have tried to say the planets aligned to make a fish, like that Ichthys Jesus fish thing. I'm going to go with no on that one. Um, Some say it was a low-hanging meteor or a bright comet, something like that. But, okay, forget all that now. But the Bible doesn't say any of that. So guess what? We don't know. We don't know. The fact that it goes away and comes back in a few verses and leads them right to the house where Jesus is, it kind of makes me think that it was a supernatural God-given sign. These magi knew the stars. They studied the stars. And this light was different. I would guess it wasn't supposed to be there normally, according to all their charts. Listen to Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6. This is from uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness of the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to you the brightness of your rising lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together they come to you your sons shall come from afar your daughters shall be carried on the hip and then you shall see and be radiant your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you the wealth of the nations shall come to you a multitude of camels shall cover you the young camels of midian and Ephah. And this is more wealth coming to them because camels weren't cheap all those from sheba shall come they shall bring gold and frankincense hmm, and shall bring good news the king is born the praises of the lord now i'm not so sure that the magi knew this passage and we're looking for this bright light literally but we do see this passage coming to fruition, at least in part with the visit of these wise men. And so all this to say, I'm not sure exactly how, I'm not sure exactly why the Magi knew it was time to make this journey to Israel to meet the newborn king. Uh, I don't know that this was the star or that star, that that, how they knew that that was what they were supposed to follow. I, I don't know. We don't know exactly what the star looked like. But we certainly can see that God did reveal this to them and gave them this sign, this marker. And then more importantly, most importantly, they came. You know what's not very important? The star. You know what is really important? They came. So, listen, this star or whatever this great bright light was that Matthew called a star, this star is not the star of this story. People can get hung up on this and spend all their time and energy thinking about this part of the account or in general. You know what I'm talking about when we read stories like this in the Bible, narratives like this in the Bible, and people kind of get all fired up and want to talk forever about these kinds of parts of the stories? Please don't get hung up on a part of the story that really holds little significance compared to the one who used the star and the one to whom the star directed these worshipers. Just a couple of scripture passages to encourage us in this. First Timothy 1, when Paul's teaching Timothy how to preach and teach and pastor. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And Titus 3.9 says this, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Point being, if I spent an hour telling you about this star and all the scientific or supernatural possibilities, it wouldn't make you love Jesus more. It wouldn't cause you to follow him with greater boldness. It would probably actually bore most of you. Okay? So let me challenge some of you that might get hung up on the star part of this passage. Don't. Don't get hung up on that. It's unprofitable and worthless. Instead, Get hung up on the fact that the nations are coming to Bethlehem to worship this little baby boy who is God in the flesh. That's what we should get hung up on. Okay, rant over. Verse three. Verse three. When Herod the king heard this, when he heard that the magi had come looking for uh, the king of the Jews to worship him, and he wasn't it, he was troubled. Uh oh. And this word for troubled means terrified, in turmoil. He was in anguish. And all Jerusalem with him. We might ask, well, why was all Jerusalem troubled? They probably didn't like him too much. But remember, when Herod's power is threatened, people die. That's why they were all troubled. Verse 4, in assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And this inquiring again is written on it as an ongoing action. Herod kept on asking these Jewish experts. So it's like this, do do you know where the Messiah will be born? Uh, Do you know where? Do you know? You kind of pick up on the idea that he was nervous and was being hasty and was probably reading people's responses to his question as much as he was looking for the answer to it. Are these Jews glad there's a potential new king? Do they know something that I don't know that I should be worried about? There's a lot of this kind of stuff and and a lot at stake in his mind right there. And I would imagine these Jewish religious leaders were a little nervous as they gave their answer to this murderous, paranoid Herod the Great's question but give an answer. They did. Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and this is Micah 5, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers of Judah, least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I want to point out a couple of things from this interaction. First, let me read to you the context of this prophecy from Micah 5. We can often learn much from the rest of the prophecy when it's mentioned in the New Testament. So this is Micah 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, uh, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Uh, That means eternity, by the way. Not just for one people, but to all those to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Their peace. So this prophecy did answer Herod's question. The king would be born in Bethlehem. And what else does this prophecy tell us? Well, one, the ruler would be eternal, like God the Son? Yes. Two, he would then fittingly share in the majesty of the Lord being that he is the Lord himself. And three, his greatness would be to the ends of the earth, the nations, and he shall be their peace. Whose peace? The nations. The nations. And now wouldn't you know, here are these Gentile magi coming to worship. I wonder if there's any theme To this idea of the king of the Jews being not only for the Jews, but also for the nations. I'm setting you up, right? Do you remember the last three verses of the book of Matthew? What they say? Let me read them to you. Jesus came and said to them, to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, ruler. Go therefore and make disciples of... All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the book of Matthew, written to the Jews, starts with the worship of these men from the nations and ends with the command to go to all the nations to make disciples. And church, here today in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, And full of a bunch of Gentiles as we are. We are the fruits of these truths and these commands. And our mission is still a global one, isn't it? We are the nations and we are still to go to the nations. Whether they live next door to us, which by the way they do. Or whether we go to the other side of the planet to tell them we're still to go. Now, back to Herod. Herod, with this newfound information, knowing the promised king of the Jews was to be born in Bethlehem, now has a job for the Magi to do. Verse 7. Herod then summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He wanted to know how old this boy was. For reasons we see in verse 16. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That doesn't sound very Herod-y, does it? Not at all. Verse 9 After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It moved! The star moved! With precision and purpose, this was no constellation. This was no natural phenomenon. This was no studied star in the sky. Okay, forget about that. God was directing nature supernaturally as only he can to bring these people to worship. God has the universe at his disposal to draw people to himself. Another one of those instances where we look at God and we go, you are bigger than I could ever fathom. And it's right for us to think that way and to see him that way. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They did not golf clap. They were not like, oh, cool, That's, that makes it easier. Put their cell phone GPS away. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, so remember they're not in a stable anymore. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. When these wise men saw Jesus, they knew that he was the Christ and they fell down and worshipped him. Not them, by the way. Mary was right there. They worshipped him. Only Jesus. This word, though, for falling down means they fell prostrate. They bowed down. They saw the Christ and they hit the deck in worship. And imagine the scene. These prominent men dressed to impress as they would, having just visited Herod, all bowing low in worship before this baby or a little toddler who was here with his teenage mother, probably in a humble little house. Amazing. Amazing. Everything looks like it's turned upside down in this scene, but it's not at all. And why do you think they dropped like this in worship before this little boy? What have these wise men been doing before this moment? Think about this. Why didn't they just go in there and say, oh cool, there he is. Why didn't they go in there and, you know, have that warm feeling in their chest and tingly spines, maybe like a tear or two, and say, well this has been great, have a good night. I know you're tired, get some rest. Why did they come in and boom, worship? Why? Well they've been watching. They have been looking for this sign of the Christ coming. They spent who knows how many resources, uh, time, energy, perhaps the loss of their reputation before all the other wise men who didn't see the need to travel to Israel, to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem. They stuck their necks out and went before King Herod, who is known to be ruthless in hopes of gaining access to the Messiah. The only way they knew how. These men were spent in their pursuit of the king and when they finally got to focus their attention together with those who traveled and labored together with them when they finally got to focus their attention on the one whom they longed to see what else would they do but fall in worship all their hard work all their study, all their effort, all their interactions with others who didn't seem as enthused about this king as they were, it built up in them this desire to bow and worship. In short, their vigorous pursuit of God resulted in a greater desire to worship. There's some massive application there. A vigorous pursuit of God will result in a greater desire to worship. And this should be held in direct contrast to the Jewish religious leaders who had come to enjoy their places of honor, their prominence in the land, their taste of even political significance. They had learned to use the system They had learned to use religion. Dare we say it, they had learned how to use God to attain everything they wanted. And so there was no room left in their hearts for the worship of anyone else. No one can serve two masters. You will always love the one and hate the other. So church, let that be a warning to us. Remember, church doesn't exist to tick all of your boxes. Christ died to make you the church. You didn't come to church today. The church came here today. And Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy of all our worship. Christ is worthy of all our praise. Christ is worthy of all our lives, even if that means death. Is he worthy? Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem to die outside of Jerusalem to pay the penalty of our sin. I deserve eternal punishment and God has gifted me with eternal life with Him. He's deserving of all glory, honor, and sincere praise. Not appropriate cultural praise. Sincere praise. And then these wise men continue in their worship in verse 11. It says, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are expensive gifts that still don't compare to the gift that they were given and that you and I were given. These gifts were not so much an addition to their worship as much as they were an element of it. Remember, worship is showing worth. That's what the word worship means. So music and sincere singing is an act of worship. Joyful giving is an act of worship. Reading and studying the word to find, learn about, and love God is an act of worship. Joyful obedience is an act of worship. Loving your neighbor as yourself is an act of worship. Sharing the gospel with hope and eager expectation is an act of worship. Do you get the idea? Do you hear the words that I'm emphasizing? Do you get that point? You can do all these things and not really worship Christ at all. But this was not true of these magi. Now we can't we can't know for sure that these gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh carried uh, these exact significant individual meanings. We can be sure they were extravagant and expensive. And some people think that Joseph and Mary used these gifts to get them to Egypt and back. However, When people do ascribe meaning to these gifts, and when we consider what these gifts were usually associated with, it goes something like this. And this list is taken from uh, David Platt's and John MacArthur's commentaries. So the gold. The gold would emphasize Jesus' royalty. Throughout the Old Testament, when the wealth of kings was on display, mentions of gold were close at hand. And this idea of symbolizing royalty would be in keeping with Matthew's uh, agenda here, his efforts thus far in, in his gospel to alert the readers that, Jew- uh, that Jesus was the Jewish king. So gold means Jesus is king. The frankincense, it would emphasize Jesus' deity. Now, when frankincense is mentioned in the Old Testament, it usually is used in reference to the worship of God, as in bringing either a sacrifice or a grain offering before the Lord. It would be mixed in, and the incense that would be burned would be of frankincense. So frankincense was used in the worship of God. So frankincense means Jesus is God. And the myrrh emphasizes Jesus' humanity. Now myrrh was a perfume used to anoint the bodies of the deceased for their burial. Jesus body was cared for in this way in John 19:39. It also served to numb the senses when consumed. It's like a painkiller. In Mark 15:23, while Jesus was on the cross, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, which he rejected by the way. He didn't accept any prescriptions when he hung on the cross, suffering for our sins. He took on the full pain and the full suffering that he had been born to bear. So this gift of myrrh could point to the humanity of Jesus and also be a reminder as we read this as to why Jesus was born in the first place. Remember, Jesus was born to be our atoning sacrifice, being born to die on our behalf. With these emphases then, what we take away from this time of worshipful gift-giving of the Magi is this these Gentile wise men, these stately, uh, powerful, prominent men have just declared the Christ, though he was still only a baby or a toddler, to be their king, to be their God, and to be their savior. And then finally, verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they have departed to their own country by another way. Uh, The wise men had possibly assumed the best in Herod, but as it turned out, Herod had no desire to worship anybody else anyways. And he had devised a plan to keep himself in charge, which, Lord willing, we'll learn about next Sunday. Okay, so just as we wrap up, this final verse gives us further evidence that the Magi were sincere in their worship. If it was all about power if it was all about personal gain, if it was all about trying to align themselves with power, would they have just disregarded this desire of this powerful, easily provoked, paranoid killer? Probably not. Would they have put themselves at risk like that? Probably not. Christ worshipers, genuine Christ worshipers know they are never truly at risk when they are in the hands of the Lord of hosts. He never loses. He will never lose. And no one can ever pluck you out of his hand. And those concerned for themselves in the here and now will normally do what seems expedient in the moment. Whatever keeps them out of trouble, whatever keeps them in the good graces of the people that they're going to see every day, Don't want to upset people and cause a ruckus, right? Listen, I'm not saying be a jerk about it. But love Jesus more. People want to keep everything quiet and business as usual. That's what we're prone to be like, aren't we? Just like these magi? No. Or was that more like the chief priests and the scribes? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the gift that you gave to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was born, that that God the Son emptied himself and took on flesh and dwelt among us. Had to be conceived and carried and born and fed and changed and raised and taught and had to be hungry and tired and thirsty and hated and spit upon and accused and abused and hung on a cross. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of Christ. Thank you for this example of the powerful, prominent Magi worshiping a little boy who was the Christ. I pray, Lord, may we worship him sincerely. May this church worship you with all our heart. And with all our lives. Remembering his sacrifice for us. Remembering his eternal glory. Lord, may we give you our all. May we live lives of worship. Not caring who might know. From the people on the streets. To the people in our homes. To the kings of this land. Realizing that it is for their good. That they might hear of the king of kings. And the lord of lords. Through our lives. And through our actions. And through our words as we preach the word. And Lord, may we joyfully continue to make disciples of every nation as you've called us to do, joyfully obeying your command. God, be with us this this week as we spend time together with our family in our own homes and extended family and uh, any work parties that are left to be had and all of the things that, that we will do and all the people that we will see this week. God, we have been placed here as salt and light in this world. God, use us for your glory, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.